on the record on news talk a very good morning to you it's sunday the 23rd of september this is news talk and this is on the record with gavin riley filling in for kieran cuddy today with you for the next two hours until one o'clock uh, if you want to contact the program you can send me a text at 53106 that'll cost you 30 cents we are also on twitter at news talk fm and at gav riley if you want to get in touch with me personally loads to come up in the program in the next two hours including the minister for health simon harris who'll be with us in studio to discuss a range of issues but not least the timeline for abortion services after some doubt was raised over over that this week, we'll have News Talk reporter Barry White, who was on the streets yesterday with the Take Back the City protests, which brought the capital city to a standstill. He'll be with us a little bit later to fill us in on all of the details. Donald Fallon will be with us for his usual instalment of Hidden Histories. We'll have the Off the Ball team and all of the weekend sport. But we'll kick it all off, as we always do, with our look at the Sunday newspapers with our newspaper panel today, which includes Professor Aidan Regan of the UCD School of Politics and International Relations, also Director of the Dublin European Institute, Seamus Coffey, who's an economist in UCC and also Chairman of the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council, and Shona Murray, Special Correspondent with Independent News and Media. You're all very welcome. Thanks for joining me on your Sunday morning. Um, I'll just give you some of the headlines and some of the front page stories. Start with the Sunday Business Post. Multinationals warn government on housing as building disappoints. Uh, This is a story by Jack Horgan Jones, who says the government has been handed a stark warning on housing, with employers warning of a growing impression that Ireland is full. According to documents seen by the Sunday Business Post, it comes in a record of a meeting between Regina Doherty and members of the American Chamber of Commerce. Uh, That story right over a banner advertisement for an 18-page property supplement. So maybe Ireland isn't quite that full, but some interesting content there. Um, The Sunday Independent on another very significant housing story, if it turns out uh, to bear fruit. It says, on posts to offer cheap mortgages, uh, Samantha McCochran reports that the biggest shake-up of the mortgage market for almost 20 years is on the way, with on posts set to offer home loans and pledging that it will undercut current market rates by as much as 1%. And crucially, she says, the mortgages will be available not only to new customers, but also to switchers seeking a move away from their current mortgage provider who want lower monthly repayments. Um, also, a housing story on the front of the Sunday Times, which says that the Take Back the City campaign has identified a property owned by the former Labour Party minister and TD. Joe Costello as a target for occupation. But that isn't its main headline. Its main headline looks forward to the budget. Stephen O'Brien reports that restaurants and hotels are braced for a rise in VAT. It says Pascal Donoghue is to increase the 9% VAT rate on hotels and restaurants by at least two percentage points in next month's budget to raise up to €260 million in extra revenue. He says that that lower VAT rate for the hospitality sector is going to be phased out over the next two years. Moving to the tabloids, the Irish Mail on Sunday, Garda stations face a new wave of closures. David McCann reports that the government's report on root and branch Garda reform calls for even more stations to be shut down, the Irish Mail on Sunday can reveal. She says the future of policing review that was chaired by Kathleen O'Toole suggests that it would be efficient and effective to replace local Gardaí with mobile units. I wonder how that would go down in step aside. That remains to be seen. Uh, and the Sunday World, uh, Nicola Talent's crime exclusive cartels, one million euro cash in the attic. She says that the Kinahan's top bagman has been caught hiding massive money haul by cops. Uh, so plenty in the newspapers, but we will start with housing. Um, Aidan Regan, is there anything particular in the housing pages of everything that's there that jumps out for you in particular? Well, I thought Stephen Kinsler's piece was uh, a very detailed analysis of the new um, land development agency because it's not entirely clear what that agency is going to do. But this article kind of unpacks 
unpacks a little bit further um, its strategic role. So that article I thought was quite good. Yeah, it's um, got quite a monster headline on it, that piece. It, it's kind of almost like a column within a column. It says, uh, housing policy is always political, but it's created a deeply politicised group of people in the have-nots. These people are typically younger and poorer. They're sometimes called millennials, but I like to think of them as people who are nearly 40. They'll march and occupy and protest until something changes. Why wouldn't they? What have they got to lose? Yeah, and he goes into detail, which I think is a very important in the current housing crises between, well, who owns land, right? Right? Mm. and the relationship between the public and the private and how that has evolved and the ebb and flow uh, of that over time and the extent to which NAMA kind of took land and now the state is effectively creating a new agency that's going to develop that land but sell it to private developers. And But it doesn't. he makes the point that it's not going to tackle the issue of prices. Mm. And I think Owner Bryn makes the same point uh, in, in, in the paper as well that this most people would welcome, I think, the state taking a much more active role in developing the existing land that's there for, 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 for there. But for if the supplier if new houses doesn't lower the price, then what will? I mean, that's an assumption. We could debate that. I mean, the, the assumption is always that if we increase the supply of housing, well, then prices are going to fall. Uh, but that's an assumption. Or not go up as quick. Like, I think Stephen Time makes the point that you go back to 2006, 2007, massive supply of housing and the price wasn't falling. Mm-hmm. But I think from a, a general perspective, you'd say, well, if we didn't build those houses, just how quickly would prices have risen? So I don't think we necessarily have to expect prices to fall. That mightn't be uh, reflective of the impact that additional supply would have. But I think even if the prices aren't rising as fast as they would have had otherwise, it's having an impact. So I think you can't be dismissive of the impact of supply on price, mm. uh, well, but it just mightn't be as obvious yeah, uh, as the impact might for be. For sure, yeah. but he makes the point that there's so many different institutions, regulations, public policies that shape the supply and demand and shape the, the nature of prices. So, for example, Owner Bryn makes the point as well, you know, we're talking about affordable housing, we're talking about rent or social housing, talk about private rental housing, talk about private ownership. So, you know, to what extent will this development agency make it affordable for people to access the housing market particularly if the objective is to take housing to, to privately own houses mm. that's a huge debate because it would appear uh, that, that it's not going to be very affordable yeah. and what is affordable of course is debatable too and that's not going to tackle the issue of what all the protests yeah. are about uh, which is homelessness uh, predominantly it, it absolutely could be an issue and that has to go through the doll and we need to get legislative approval for those targets where 60% of it would still go into private hands um, Shona Murray one of the main points that Stephen Kinsler makes in that article he says that these are young people now who are going to take to the streets they're going to be politicised because what have they got to lose um, do you think that there's a sign that this could be a sustained thing that take back the city isn't going to be a, a bit of a flash in the pan and that this could actually be the start of something bigger well you'd, you'd hope so actually you know, it's, it's one of those discussions I've had even down at Electric Picnic um, we were having a conversation it was to do with Trump and Brexit and it evolved within 10-15 minutes about the housing crisis everybody in the room on a Saturday afternoon wanted to talk about housing and the point was being made that um, at that time, we expected Trump, for example, to visit Ireland. And everybody was saying, why are we protesting Donald Trump and not protesting housing? Because mm. it's, it's obviously fundamentally one of the things that affects Irish people much more than any of the sort of top down decisions that Donald Trump makes against maybe even if it's to do with climate change or, you know, the International Criminal Court or whatever. And yet people, young people have been silent on this. And mm. you kind of question why, because they're the ones who won't have access to, well, even renting houses. Students won't, don't have access to proper renting accommodation, never mind trying to buy a house. And then I think um, one of the interesting things about today's papers is the front page on uh, the Sunday Business Post from Jack Horgan Jones saying that the government has been handed a stark warning on housing by multinationals in the American Chamber of Commerce. Mm. And this is probably the only thing that's going to make the government move unfortunately, even though we've heard this for years. I mean, many of the um, you know, the sort of uh, tech companies have been saying this to the government. They've been concerned about it because 
the government is trying to attract them to come over here, but they don't have any, you know, their staff won't have anywhere to live. Similarly, when we were trying to attract any of the European agencies, the medicines agencies, uh, the banking authority, you know, these are these are people who come from sophisticated, uh, well, London, mm. actually, in, in those cases, which has uh, transport systems, access to proper housing. Yeah, where it's feasible to live a fair bit outside the city and still get to live in. outside and uh, uh, the ability to live inside and, and having neighbourhoods, uh, you know, that are set up so that you don't even have to travel into the city if you don't want to at the weekend. And none of that is available in Ireland. And yet we still want to not only attract those companies to come to Ireland, we want to attract our um, emigrants from a, who are living in places, excellent cities like Melbourne or London or mm. Paris to come back and then and live and then I suppose overpopulate would be the word that you could use because as, a, as the term is used in, in the Sunday Business Post, Ireland is full. Yeah. Aidan Reading, you wanted to come in on that. Yeah, I mean, I suppose in a sense it's the dog that hasn't barked. A lot of people were asking why was there not more kind of mass civil unrest about this particular policy issue and I suppose it was only really a matter of time before it began to really break out onto the streets and it's happening at the moment and it's setting the agenda and there's so many different kind of groups out there that are organizing around this issue um but it seems to me that you know the, the multi Ireland, this perception that Ireland is full. I mean, anybody who's trying to employ in Ireland, whether you're in the university sector or you're whether in the multinational tech sector, is having that debate. Yes. It's like, well, actually, yeah, it's true. There's huge issues here about trying to access the private rental market. And uh, yeah, let's get back to the issue of prices again. Uh, well, on the issue of prices, Seamus, I wanted to come to you about the story that's the splash in the Sunday Independent, this idea that Ampust is going to enter the mortgage market and potentially uh, undercut rates uh, by 1% based on its, its lender competitors, which would obviously be very good news for people who are looking for a mortgage or people who may have a mortgage. Uh, is there a danger, though, that if uh, an agency with the, the state backing, like on Post, was to get into mortgage lending, that it might just make it easier for people to be able to borrow, but when there is no increase in supply, only ends up driving prices up even more? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's yeah, an interesting piece by, by Samantha McCochran, all right. Uh, and I suppose what it does identify is some of the issues we have around our mortgage market as it stands, uh, that are the current banks in Ireland are charging uh, rates of 3% or more uh, on mortgages, where right across the EU, um, new figures from the central bank show that the rates in Ireland are the highest across the EU mm. in the low interest rate we have environment. Why do we consistently have that situation where Ireland, you know, Irish banks have exactly the same access to the same foreign loans as every other bank does? So mm. why is our culture so much more expensive? Well, I, I, I guess there's some element of coordination involved. Given a small market with a small number of players, mm. uh, it's probably not difficult so for them. It's a lack of competition. That's what it appears to me. Uh, and there are various reasons why, um, I suppose, non-domestic lenders haven't come into the market. Like, why aren't foreign banks looking at the Irish situation in a case where interest rates across Europe uh, are close to zero. They themselves are offering mortgages in their own markets uh, for 1% or even uh, 2%, sometimes for the life of the mortgage. Whereas in Ireland, we, we have rates that are 3% and higher. Uh, that There are significant uh, sums to be made there, but there is a variety of reasons why the foreign lenders aren't coming into the market. Unpost is a domestic institution, perhaps has gone through some negative headlines uh, over recent weeks, mm-hmm. so might be uh, seeking to turn that around by, by offering something that might appear to be a positive. I'm not sure Unpost itself has the, the wherewithal to enter the mortgage market. Uh, it may have the, the financial uh, clout to do so, but does it have the, I suppose, the, the institutional well, knowledge? One of the reasons on for the foreign, com- foreign banks not coming into Ireland is because the banking crisis was not so long ago <coughs> and a lot of them ended up sort of escaping or leaving um, and at this stage they're looking at the property market and seeing that houses are overvalued and they just 
see that a repeat of a few years mm. ago is probably on the and horizon. The issue of what the house has been overvalued, like links it back to the earlier discussion about take back the city um, and the, the issue of vacancy and dereliction in Dublin. You have what we consider to be very high rents and very high prices. Yet we have owners of property simply just sitting there. Uh, as somebody who doesn't live in Dublin, but there's no incentive work. for them not to sit there, though, is there? Though I, that's the issue. There's an incentive to earn huge sums of money if you rent out these properties mm. at thousands of euro per month. I, I don't understand why they're sitting in them and doing nothing. The prices are going to change largely, irrespective of what these people do. Um, but yet there, you have huge levels of vacancy across the city. Like as somebody who doesn't live in Dublin, I do think uh, maybe as Aidan says, it's surprising it's taken so long for this issue to get on the front page well, and dominate the paper just as be- it is doing today. Just before I bring Aidan back in, as someone who doesn't live in Dublin, you live in Cork, that's where you live and work, uh, is the, the crisis as acute there? Just for There for is a housing issue in, in Cork. There is no doubt there are housing supply issues in Cork. Not to the same extent you'd have in Dublin. Uh, and it probably would be easier to fix given that Cork is a much smaller city. But rent prices in Dublin or in Cork have been increasing and the price of sales have been increasing and there's been a slow uptake in the uptake in the, in the level of construction and the building. We've lots of commercial activity like we have in Dublin, uh, but very little on the residential side. But I do think this whole issue of vacancy is probably something that Ireland needs to address. So you look at international cities, yeah. uh, it's not the same extent. Like I maybe get the train to Dublin, you get the, the Lewis in as far as the city centre and just along that stretch of track there, close to the city centre, on prime uh, public transport and just to see buildings there but not, not being used. Yeah, I mean, it is very, very surprising. I mean, quite frankly, there should not be car dealerships along the canal. There should not be car dealerships along kind of Prussia Street, Manor Street. A pretty hefty side value tax of about 50% would quickly force a lot of that out into the outskirts. I mean, yesterday I had to pick up something in North County Dublin and the further you get away from Dublin, it's just tracks and tracks of land, empty land and you ask yourself, on the one hand you could develop this for housing, but then you have the question, well how would people get to work? How would they get into the city centre? You'd have to put in the urban infrastructure, that's not there. Well then on the other hand you could say, well a hefty side value tax would probably empty up mm-hmm. a lot of the empty, uh, the unproductive use of land and buildings that takes place within the city. Well, if, if it's not the most productive use of land, that's all well and good. But if you have a side value tax and then a developer wants to come along and build 100 apartments on that, well, that uh, side value tax, hefty as you suggested might be, not ultimately get passed on to the tenant in rent so that it will result in more housing, but it'll be damn expensive housing. There, there is that risk of sure, but really what I'm talking about with the side value tax is basically what 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 what, was, what Seamus mentioned if you go along the canal. Mm. There's so much land there that's not being used productively. You have a company, and no disrespect to somebody who's selling tyres for example for 20 years on that piece of land it's not that same space could house effectively as you say maybe 200 families now the question of prices you give that to developer they bring it up could it be affordable that's the original point we discussed at the beginning Mm. that's not going to make prices affordable but on the issue of the interest rates it's worth noting that most European banks follow the Eurobor rate so they're following the rate that takes place at the European Central Bank Eurobor rate for for people who aren't familiar is the rate at which European banks effectively lend to each other isn't that right? Yes pretty much so on that basis then if the when the European Central Bank increases its interest rate, those banks will have to increase their rates too. Now, it will be interesting to see if Irish banks do, because when they didn't decrease the rates during the, this period, they have no leg to stand on to increase the rates when they increase again. But we have no banking union. That's the fundamental point about Europe as well. There is no properly functioning banking union here. Seamus, your thoughts on that? Even if there was banking union, I think it's unlikely that the foreign lenders would come to Ireland like, with the level of the market. There's a killing to be made, though, with the way the market is. Like, are we not well, I suppose they just the see additional risks, so like they'll be looking at, at the price and maybe the price, the interest rate might seem attractive. Uh, but of course, we have issues in Ireland when it comes to actually um, foreclosing on a contract where the mortgage pay- payments aren't being made. Uh, and that alone might serve as a, a disincentive well, for, talk, for talk foreign to banks to come issues, in. Talk about You've been witness to a lot of those court hearings in Cork and there's sometimes there's a lot of commentary about the wave of, of home repossessions and evictions. But you've, you've sat through a lot of those and you don't seem to think that it's quite as, as easy as a bank well, There's no evidence to support the, the notion that there's a tsunami of repossessions. That is either A, has happened. Some people believe it has happened. 
uh, or B, likely to happen. Mm. The court simply aren't granting uh, repossession orders. Now, in some there's legitimate reasons for that. Uh, in others, it's just a, a complete inertia uh, where the, the, the courts will grant borrowers huge amounts of time uh, with the hope that they can get back a track. And in some instances, you'd say a repossession order uh, should happen, but the courts simply aren't granting them. Mm. And I presume foreign banks, without really getting into the weeds and looking and seeing what's happening, uh, will see issues here where it could increase their costs and could affect uh, the, the profit they might make on what appear to be very high interest rates. So at present, you have the Irish banks having the ability to charge these very high rates and not facing the competition to force them down. Maybe talks of, of on post might change that, um, but I think at present it's making mm. a good headline, but I'm not sure on post will be doing it. Okay, yeah. there's, there's one way that you can address the, the housing shortage, and one is, uh, as you've been talking about, trying to free up the property authority there. The other one is trying to build more supply. Uh, but Sean Murray, your colleague Philip Ryan on page 20 mm. of the Sunday Independent today uh, is writing about what <coughs> he says is the nauseating political hypocrisy inflaming the housing crisis, mm. where people who are calling for further housing supply are still trying to raise yeah, panic he's, objections he's talking on their about, own lands. Uh, Catherine Byrne, a Fine Gael TD in uh, Dublin South Central, I think, yep. And uh, there was a government announcement alongside the Taoiseach and Minister for Housing, Owen Murphy, where I think it was about four, just uh, just under 500 new housing units. Some of them would be uh, for renters, some of them would be social housing, um, were, you know, and was announced in near the Inchicore mm. area, which is sort of her prime slot. Um, and she tweeted immediately on that day, even though she was a guest at the launch, that it was a bad idea. And since then, she's been lobbying to, to ensure that the announcement is uh, cancelled yeah. and the houses don't get built. she's to do that, though. She thinks that it, it's going well, to eat up all the green space. the point is that it's nimbyism again, because every sing- and probably at every hand's turn, it appears that... Um, TDs um, are listening to their constituents who obviously want to see, um, you know, some sort of resolution to the housing crisis, but not in parts of their constituency that, you know, that might be offensive to certain dwellers, like, for example, I suppose, apartment blocks blocking people's voters. sunlight. Yeah. <laughs> voters. Well, voters is what I meant. Yeah, obviously I meant that. But, yeah. but, the, the, but the issue is that, I mean, I'm sure there are legitimate concerns that maybe, you know, we know that in this country we're not great at planning anyway. So mm. maybe wherever the, wherever the houses are being situated or the apartment blocks, they might not be, you know, I- ideal um, in terms of, uh, you know, blocking but other people's access. at this stage access. it's kind of beggars and choosers though, isn't it? It is indeed. But then again, we will. We could be also filled with regret in about five years' time if we decide to respond to this in a hasty mm. way, yeah. like we have done, like we do historically. And I don't see any change that that again we we'll, we we'll end up putting up apartment blocks or you know houses that are you know badly planned and um, just basically clog up areas, clog mm. up roads. And um, there's probably you know t- oversubscription in the local schools sure. already. So you can understand there's legitimate concerns, but it, at the same time, just blocking it in this way, that's not really uh, that's not too, uh, too progressive it, either. You're, you're straining your yeah, I mean, it's just, I thought heard. this article really hit the nail on the head yeah. because you talk to people in Dublin in particular today and I'm, I'm Dublin biased, I'm based here and a large part of the housing crisis is here. But and everybody's in favour of social housing. Everybody says, yes, the government should be involved in building, you know, providing housing, not just in terms of getting land out there, but actually building the house, providing a affordable rent to people to rent at. And then you say, OK, so let's build some housing, beside, social housing beside you. Oh, well, no, not in my area, right? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying it should be here. So it seems to me, unless there is a deep cultural change in how people perceive and treat the issue of social housing and we become more European in that we change our mindset about what actually is meant by the housing stock and who rents from what, then there's not going to be any change because you will have politicians who will say on the one hand we wouldn't need more social housing but then their voters say well not in our constituency and therefore they're not willing to put the actual policy and it's in, and it's every, it's in every constituency because I know there's Fine Gael TDs who are concerned about uh, social housing under Mount Merion and the argument being well this is you know a prime land so therefore you could probably build you know maybe exquisite housing and make some more, make more money for the state by just by instead of giving it away in social housing and again it's 
nimbyism. So every, uh, you know, at every time you're going to probably hit this problem. At the same time, I do think we should also look at um, government plans before they um, decide to build houses. Okay. To uh, I have to get to a break, but just before I do, Seamus Coffee, this idea of political will, you often hear ideology and class mentioned as part of this. Do you think that's sometimes maybe done in a politically opportunistic way that people try to apply those labels to the solution? Oh, absolutely. I think the point in the show makes that like, political will has to come from the voters as well. Uh, mm. Like politicians will deliver uh, the policies that they feel that will get them re-elected. Like, that's their modus operandi. So you can look at what the politicians should be doing. You can also look at will within, I suppose, the, the, the wider bureaucratic system and what it is that's trying to achieve. Um, but I think in the main, the political will to do something has to come from the electorate. OK, you're listening to News Talks on the record. It's Gavin Riley filling in for Kieran Cuddy this morning. We'll have more from the Take Back the City protests later. Our <laughs> News Talk reporter Barry White was there. He was talking to those involved. We'll hear from him in the next hour. Uh, back with our panel, though, in just a moment and hearing exactly what Jeremy Corbyn has had to say this morning about the Irish border and, God forbid, another Brexit referendum. On the record. On News Talk. Welcome back. It's Gavin Riley from Virgin Media News. Late of this parish, actually, but delighted to be back for a couple of hours filling in for Kieran Cuddy this Sunday morning and off the record. Uh, still going through the morning papers with our panel, Aidan Regan, uh, Seamus Coffey and Shona Murray. On the record, by the way, you'd know I was new around here that I'm still even struggling with the name of the show. Uh, now, the UK Labour Party conference is kicking off today and the Labour leader, Jeremy Corbyn, has been speaking with Andrew Marr on the BBC in the last hour or so. Here is some of what he's had to say, some very interesting comments on the prospect of a second referendum or what's next for Brexit. I think we can reach an agreement that would ensure there is a freedom of trade across the Irish border and across the Irish Sea, but that means there, there, has, no to be, that there has to be a trade agreement with Europe in order to achieve that. And that's the case that Keir Starmer and I have put, and we will continue to put, and we will continue to negotiate if we're in government on that point. At the moment, we can only make our views known and obviously hold our government to Account. But it doesn't sound as if you have a new or different idea about how to resolve the Irish border question, which is what this is all breaking down over. It, Europe is very clear, the EU uh, is very clear that they do not want to see an unravelling of the Belfast Agreement the, or the whole Irish peace process, and they see the imposition of a border as part of that unravelling, and they're right about that. I think we can get an agreement which would ensure you do not have that hard financial okay. border. And what you also want as a movement and as a party is a second referendum, or the so-called people's vote, 87% of your own supporters and your own members want that now. They're all coming to this conference asking for it. There's lots of signs that if you say, do you know what, I've looked at this and in the new circumstances that we're in today, I can see the case for a second referendum. That would be your route to number 10. We're having a debate at our conference and we will come to a conclusion on that. Our preference is that we will demand our six tests against the government and our preference would be for a general election and we can then negotiate our future relationships with Europe. But let's see what comes out of conference. We're a democratic party, we're very big, it's the biggest conference we've ever had. And given that, do you feel bound by what the conference decides well, as the leader? Obviously, I'm, I'm there elected uh, as a leader of this party, elected as the leader in order to bring greater democracy to this party and that's exactly what I've been doing for the past three years. Uh, that was Jeremy Corbyn speaking to Andrew Marr on the BBC a little over an hour ago. Uh, Shona Murray, mm. uh, this idea, 86 or 87% of Labour members in favour of a public vote on the Brexit deal. That, of course, presumes that there is a Brexit deal. Uh, but if there is a public referendum on the Brexit deal and it potentially gets voted down, then what next? Yeah, that's, that's I don't understand what, then I guess this is the uh, this is the future relationship deal as well, as opposed to the withdrawal agreement. Well, I guess it's the whole thing in one kid and caboodle. Yeah, but what so happens if they vote it down? But then I suppose they don't have a deal. Um, 
or, you, that, there's, a, or there's an election. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. Know. It's very. You know, I I find it really um, confusing um, when we discuss even the Labour Party as to whether they're in favour of remaining in the customs union, the single market, like people like Keir Starmer and Chuck Amuna want, or people like Jeremy Corbyn who says things like financial borders there, which I don't know what he's talking <laughs> yes. about. And it doesn't bode well about their understanding when I, when I, of the issues, does well, it? Quite frequently, when you listen to Jeremy Corbyn, he really doesn't really uh, quite understand exactly what the single market and the customs union is. Um, so if 86% of them want a, a vote on the Brexit deal then and then it's voted down what is this what is the the result after that well, it's, it's you'd unclear have, You'd have to assume wouldn't you Aidan Regan that if there was to be a vote on whatever deal Theresa May does manage to get unlikely as it seems now at the moment that if that deal was voted down that's kind of no confidence territory and she'd have to go back to the country for another general election wouldn't she? Oh yeah I mean I presume that the Brexit deal that's being referred to here is the divorce deal first and foremost mm. not the actual not future the, economic mm. relationship which would take place basically so in two we're and talking and a half, about a years. referendum that could happen in the next two or three months Yeah we're talking about and basically a referendum I think on what will be the exit right the divorce settlement and if there is a referendum on that in Britain and if it's rejected then yeah we'd have to assume that ultimately there but will be a general a, election But why would you have a referendum on the withdrawal agreement because withdrawal agreement are settled issues such as citizens rights the £39 billion yeah. pounds, and the, the, uh, the backstop right yeah. so that's not really that, but, that, that yeah, the, the implications are that aren't as large very contentious though if yeah. it requires you to I, adopt by is, some of the customs rules It is rules. but it depends on the backstop because I, as we know there are, there are Efforts. I don't know how uh, you know futile they'll be to de- so-called de-dramatize the backstop and possibly, as Colin McCarthy is talking about in the Sunday Independent today, kick elements of it down the road until such a time as we have a future relationship. So I don't think but that I you think have a referendum. But I think that's why Jeremy Corbyn, if you hear what he's, I think they would prefer to have a general election mm. rather than a referendum. I don't see a <laughs> referendum on this, by the way. This is just a kind of a poll has been mm. taken of Labour Party members, yes. and they've said we'd like to have a referendum. But if he says he's bound by it, then that effectively means that the MPs are going to be whipped into it and it would effectively then happen, wouldn't it? It's almost a dead cert. Yeah, I just couldn't see it happening, to be perfectly honest. I mm. think it will go to Parliament and I think, perfectly honest, I think there will be a general election. I don't think this divorce settlement is going to take is going to satisfy pretty much anybody in the Tory parties. I do see a general election coming down the tracks and I think so does Jeremy Corbyn. Is Jeremy Corbyn a little bit exposed though if there were to be a referendum on the deal given that Labour in general has been so equivocal and prevaricating and dancing on the head of a pin about whether it's in yeah. favour of a Brexit or yeah. a single market or a customs union yeah. or and not And you even anyway. see, you hear that in the interview just there it wasn't exactly clear what Jeremy Corbyn was saying no, at all. I, to I, be I, quite I, was actually, so, I was trying to figure so out what the question might have been because I couldn't understand what, he, what his response was. But I do think and I think you, you mentioned I thought Colin McCarthy's article today was excellent and that it outlines quite clearly you know we talk in the Irish media quite clearly about this stuff that there's an exit right that's mm-hmm. a divorce settlement that's ultimately what needs to be decided and everybody knows that it's the border question that's going to decide that fundamentally the Tories the British they don't seem to quite get that yet I mean, I presume we're going to talk about that, mm. but they don't seem to get that that's what that settlement is about. It's got nothing even to do. There will be a political mm. statement on the future trading relationship, but that's not even what they're going to vote on. Also, with um, uh, with Jeremy Corbyn, he needs to be very careful not to tie himself down to guaranteeing his members a referendum, because obviously that's what David Cameron did, and that's why we're here <laughs> in this mess in the first place. Yeah, you know, um, Jeremy Corbyn should, I think, maybe be pushing for a refer, uh, like you said, an uh, an election that would be the best idea. Then we could maybe, I mean. To depending on the outcome, refresh the partner that we're working with. Mm. I don't know. We, 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 you don't know if it would be a Labour government. It's impossible to say, actually. Uh, I'll come, just, I want to come to Seamus in just a second, but Shona, just on, on that point about if there perhaps need, if there is going to be a deal and if maybe time is running out, the prospect of maybe delaying uh, mm. the, the Article 50 deadline beyond next March. Is there any prospect of that or do you think that yeah, just I doesn't get sold in Britain? It, um, I think that's something that isn't said out loud because um, it's too, it's so delicate. And, Can you and, sell it in and, the UK, though? 
But if you were to say it, if you were to say it out loud, even in the UK, um, you'd be delaying Brexit. You'd be delaying Brexit exactly, uh, and then also you'd be it, it. It just there's so many complications with that because of because of the uh, European elections that are happening in in May. Yeah. You know, uh, is Brexit going to definitely go ahead? Like, how long would you, would you delay Article 50 talks until? And would you still have to have a withdrawal agreement by October and March, or by, by October and November? Because March is the deadline to actually leave the EU, and yeah. then the transition deal kicks in, which is the 20 one period in which the future relationship yeah. can be negotiated. But what our sticking point here is now that is the withdrawal agreement and Britain, you know, um, Britain's, uh, you know, uh, terms and conditions for which you can leave the EU on. Uh, Seamus, there's an awful lot in today's papers about Brexit and the aftermath of Salzburg and what happens next. Is there anything that particularly stands out from what you've read or heard this morning? I suppose one thing would be the different stance taken by, by the various papers. Like you have the, the Colin McCarthy approach, sort of the pragmatic approach, setting out what can happen, what should happen and what needs to happen. And then you may, maybe the approach in, in the Sunday Times, both in their editorial and in some of the pieces in the Sunday Times that this idea of the EU punishing Britain, that these negotiations should be about divvying out the spoils. And but you're, it is you're a saying, fair point, really isn't it? Because you, like, particularly Leo Varadkar has been riding high in the opinion polls for the last nine months because just before Christmas he managed to get one over on the DUP. And there perhaps might be this suspicion that as long as we keep doing that then the government is fine. But the Sunday Times editorial does make the point that it's actually it's a woefully bad idea in Ireland's interest isn't it? What, to keep demanding that the, the backstop is what we should... Or, or, or even just to do anything that looks like it's antagonising the DUP in the first place. But I think like, we have to remember that we are only one of 27 um, yeah. within the EU and the EU is a very rules-driven organisation that has treaties, that has uh, certain concepts in there that the, the UK has been part of for the last 43 years in terms of setting up these rules and they seem to be uh, willing to ignore or dismiss uh, the structures that they've put in place uh, and there's been a dismissal of what Michel Barnier has been doing over the last uh, couple months. Like there seems to be the view in a lot of the, the UK based papers that the negotiations went backwards last week. Like the negotiations didn't go backwards. Mm. They didn't go forwards. Mm. Like all that happened was that the EU leaders through the council repeated what Michel Bernier has been saying and for the last six yeah. or seven months. And so there seems to be this view within um, leadership and political leadership in the UK that Theresa May could go over and change things that had been said previously. Uh, and that the fact that this didn't happen was a big surprise. It was a humiliation for, for the UK. Uh, whereas all that happened was that the, the negotiations didn't go where they wanted them to go. Uh, do you think that there's a fair chance that the British government, even till now, does not uh, understand what it has already signed up to with that backstop arrangement last December? Yeah, I think there's two dimensions to that. On the one hand, yes, I don't think they fully understood and that's why Theresa May is kind of crawling back since that statement that she fu- she, she realised, oh, hang on a second, we do share a border here. That question of sharing a border with another European Union country is going to be complicated. We can't have two separate customs unions. We have to be either in one or the other. It's that simple. But I think there is a broader point there and it's it was, it's that in Britain, and you see it in particular in the British media, and you see it in the editorial in the Sunday Times, they seem to think that this is a free-for-all negotiation between 28 mm-hmm. different states. They seem to think that this is basically the European Council with heads of states bargaining things out over big deals, that that's where the fundamental decision will take place. Forgetting that they've actually deliberately for, given Barnier that job. Precisely, that actually the 27 here are relatively united, right? And the, the fact that there will be negotiating with Michel Barnier. Mm. The European Commission is the lead negotiator here. And this idea that you can pick member states off each other <coughs> clearly is not working. And I think the reaction you've seen in the British press, the reaction you've seen from Theresa May, was a, a realisation, oh my God, we can't actually get these people to fight against each other. But they've been doing that for months. Uh, even before uh, December, um, there were reports back from European capitals that the um, British government, British officials were speaking to people in Paris, people in Berlin, saying, look, 
sideline the Irish issue. Don't make that part of the withdrawal agreement. Even just remove that protocol altogether and we'll sort it out down the line. Similarly, they didn't forget that Michel Barnier is the sole negotiator on behalf of the European Council and the European Commission. They decided to, like you said, try and pick off member states. Look at what happened two weeks ago in Strasbourg and the British government, or say the Tory party, whipped its MEPs to vote against Article 7 sanctions against Viktor Orban for his authoritarian authoritarian mm. uh, regime in Hungary did that specifically and quite obviously in order to curry favour with him within the European People's Party and the European Council it didn't work because Orban um, is not is not going to yeah. uh, take Britain's side in all of this when he's barely hanging, well, hanging on well, the European sp- Council Speaking of a slightly botched uh, British negotiation tactic one thing Seamus that struck out for me in the papers today and it is the lead on the British edition of the Sunday Times it's at the very bottom of page 2 uh, in our own one that the number 10 plot now to try and save Brexit is to have another general election. Yes, going back that to that work? we just discussed a few minutes ago, and it seems that maybe late on thir- or early on Thursday morning, uh, when it was figured out that, that Theresa May's uh, approaches to the EU leaders weren't going well, that how do we respond to this? Uh, hmm. That we'll have a general election. Now, it doesn't seem to be a very well developed idea. Now, uh, obviously, uh, it would eat up a huge amount of time. But could there be any ill that comes of it? Because it either results in uh, another, it's very unlikely to result in a return of what we have where Theresa May is reliant on the DUP. So either she has some more of her own like she intended to have last time around and she's got a slightly better hand and she's less, you know, uh, hamstrung by the commons. Or you get a government led by Jeremy Corbyn who perhaps doesn't know what he wants, but at least... I think Jeremy Corbyn knows what he wants, he's just not telling us. Because it mightn't fit in with the views of the broad Labour Party uh, membership. Like, I think he has a clear idea uh, of what he wants. He just doesn't express that. Uh, So I think that's maybe a bit unfair on him. What a general election might offer... uh, I don't think it would create ill will on the side of the EU uh, because, like, you have to respect a Mm. a country's uh, autonomy to to, to have a general election to put uh, a new government in place. And if that's what the UK wish to do, well, that's their right. It would put... everything on the skids for another six weeks though which at, at the present time with deadlines looming doesn't look too healthy but those deadlines mm. won't be met there will be an extension mm. of those negotiations at for least sure. in November mm. for there the withdrawal ex- agreement but and I actually Theresa May would still be at council and you still have Ollie Robbins negotiating on behalf of the EU at, um, you know, on, Bre- on Brexit issues it would just be that the policy could change when a new uh, government is instituted yeah. but sure. I think the, like you did mention like what would be in Ireland's strategic self-interest here you know, in terms of the border and I do think and I've said it consistently for a long time now that Labour-led government will be a lot easier to deal with in terms of the pragmatic questions about the internal market. Yes, Jeremy Corbyn is trying to appease his voters by not being in or out. He knows his party is very much in favour of sort of remaining in the EU. So I think from the EU's perspective, from the Irish perspective, you know, it will be a lot easier to move towards some sort of customs union arrangement mm. abiding by the internal market with a Labour-led government. I'm not sure that's true. I'm not sure that's true. I think the Labour Party have suggested that they want the UK to have the benefits of uh, of being in the customs union, but they haven't come out explicitly and said they want the UK to remain in the customs union. But they're not uh, beholden to an evangelical far right no. party oh, in no the doubt. north of Ireland, which is <laughs> yeah. the big kind of that. This is the big issue yeah. here. And you it's know? Surpri- I suppose it's, from an Irish perspective, it may be surprising that uh, a political party in Ireland seems to have that view that they are trying to create a border and maybe create problems between Northern Ireland as an entity and the rest of the UK. Yeah. Um, that that might lead us in that direction. And this, that is somewhat and this unusual. Has, this but I don't think the Labour Party are the panacea. That, that some might suggest and even there uh, in the clip we heard from Jeremy Corbyn he said that if he was in government uh, he would negotiate uh, a, a Brexit that would offer the UK those benefits but again it's the choice as Aidan said you're either in one mm. customs union or the other if the Labour Party came out and explicitly said which one of those they want to choose 
then the Labour-led government uh, might offer that those advantages in the negotiations. But until they come out and yep. say that, the I don't see any change happening. The Labour Party also would Brief have a finish, stronger connect, connect and consciousness about the Good Friday Agreement. Mm. And uh, they wouldn't be as reckless as, let's say, the Michael Goves or David Davis or Boris Johnson when it comes to destroying that. So I think they would be a little bit more uh, conscientious about not ripping that up. And again, not wouldn't be beholden to the DUP either. So from an Irish perspective, it definitely would be uh, more ideal to have a Labour Party. I actually know that in government, there's a bit of an idea that if Jeremy Corbyn was in, um, um, you know, in charge, that they would be less likely to inter- engage in a race to the bottom when it comes to tax because mm. of the socialist tendencies. Mm. So that would also help the Irish uh, economy. An awful lot to be thrashed out before the next summit next month. Another thing, of course, to be thrashed out before October is the budget. And we're going to talk about that in just a few minutes. This is On the Record on News Talk. Gavin Riley in for Kieran Cuddy this morning. Back to the panel in just a moment. On the Record. On News Talk. Welcome back. Sunday, the 23rd of September. This is Gavin Riley on the record and News Talk filling in for Kieran this morning. 53106 is the number for your text at a cost of 30 cents. We're also on Twitter at News Talk FM. Uh, lots of stuff uh, in the papers today, which we're going through with our panel, Aidan Regan, Seamus Coffey, and Shona Murray, uh, about the budget coming up. Uh, I mentioned that Sunday Times lead story earlier restaurants and hotels braced for a rise in VAT. Uh, Stephen O'Brien reports that the VAT rate for the hospitality sector could be phased out in the next couple of years. Uh, Michal Martin is writing in the Sunday Business Post about how this budget is the last chance to Brexit-proof our economy and address the current crisis in health and housing. Uh, there's a big piece also in the Business Post by Colin Murphy about the legacy of the crash coming up to the 10th anniversary this week of the bank guarantee. Um, but also a very interesting piece uh, on page 10 of the Business Post. Uh, Donoghue has no budget cash hidden behind the radiator. Uh, Seamus Coffey, you looked at that and you scoffed out loud. Why yeah, so? Well, because there's lots of money there uh, and it's, ma- um, it's a matter of the, the choices we make with that money. Uh, and I think there may be interest groups or, or lobbyists are uh, groups out there looking for certain things to be done and, and one sort of rebuff that why we're not doing certain things that the money simply isn't there. Um, but it's clear there is substantial funds there. Like just for, for 2019 alone, like this budget focusing on next year, like government spending next year will increase by three and a half billion. Like there's huge scope just within that uh, to do lots of, of additional things. It's just that a lot of it has already been decided whether it comes to public sector pay or, or ramping up capital spending or additional services and supports in various areas. But a lot does of that it has already been used. That in fact, Borhaskel who does not have cash hidden down behind the He's going to spend three and a half billion uh, extra next year on top of the 70 billion already been spent. Uh, so we, we rarely hear talk of reallocations uh, across different uses. It's as if you, once you get into the system and get the funding up and running, uh, it happens on a, a permanent perpetual basis. So basically, and your, your even point with that three and a half billion for next year, we could raise taxes uh, if we felt that there was additional priorities or things that we wanted to cover uh, and within uh, the resources currently being generated, we could raise taxes or suggesting that the, the VAT rate uh, on the uh, the, the, the tourism side, sector. hospital sector will go up. You can, you don't have to cut income tax. Uh, you can change excise duty. Uh, in last year's budget, there was a minor increase in corporation tax. They're the main tax heads. Like significant sums of money could be raised from those. So I think the idea that there's no money available is a bit of a kind of a brush off uh, as to why certain things aren't being done. We so must face up the reality that it's choices about the huge sums that are available as the key issue. So we see these things through the prism about the the 800 million or so that's still available in the dreaded fiscal space, rather than the 50 billion out of spending that's there. Oh, yeah, well, like in Ireland, we have a history of our budget being a pageant, uh, that you have this budget day where it's maybe one of the few occasions when all TDs and all Aractus members turn up. It's on television, the place is full, you'd spare to like that the whole time. That the minister comes in, that the speech can't be distributed until the minister stands up and starts talking. You can't talk about anything in the speech until he's actually said it. What uh, colour tie is he wearing? Yeah, 
yeah. <laughs> uh, other countries don't go through this sort of pageantry and drama that we do. I think mm-hmm. a, a more ongoing debate, that the, perhaps the, the current uh, actually political agreement is actually fostering that you have maybe a, uh, an opposition, maybe a name uh, and the government party going through a couple of weeks of negotiation actually helps uh, where things get aired, uh, options are, are presented and we actually go through why various decisions are made. Yeah, this is a very important point I mean, and our, this is a very Irish thing, the kind of the annual budget statement etc and then you get into these conversations, or oh, how much in the fiscal space 800 million, I mean there's three different dimensions to this I think and the first one is we've never, we need to have a bigger conversation a more strategic long term conversation which is how much should the state take in as a percentage of national income and form of of revenue, right? At present, it's about what thirty-five to thirty-eight percent, depending on which ones you use. Be shameless to check your right. Thirty-four percent, right? That's the, that right, which is relatively speaking, in European terms, low, mm. right? That is low relative to most northwestern European countries. Within that. Pr- budget there, right? Within that 35%, let's say, pretty much 80% of it goes on three major things, healthcare, education and social security. And within social security, it's predominantly pensions, right? Within those two, three things, it's mainly about pay because you're talking about public services, health services, educational services. Mm. So the qu- we've never really had a bigger conversation about how much do we want to take in as a percentage of national income? How much do we want to spend on healthcare? How much do we want to invest in education? How much do you want to do on consumption? How much do you want to do on investment? Those are the type of conversations we should be having, not how much do we have behind the couch on budget day in December to spend on this or that. That's just pointless. That sounds like the sort of conversation that those good people in the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council Mm. ought to be having, Seamus. Well, it's something we'd actually recommend having, that you have a more long-term view that a budget shouldn't be just done on an annual basis, that it should be done over a period of time, perhaps over over the lifetime of a parliament, which tends to be what happens in most EU countries that don't have uh, this dramatic day where where fiscal policy is set. They do tend to have negotiations over a protracted period mainly through coalitions uh, setting out what their, their fiscal policy would be over a number of years in line with what Aidan has suggested so basically look the, at first, the, the first budget of each parliament ought to be a five year budget then but well, they don't even have a budget per se like they, they do have a negotiation they present a programme for government uh, and then you know what's happening it does give you a more uh, long term approach and maybe going back to our, our housing issue that, that Jonah mentioned that we shouldn't have short term plans that maybe get us over a, uh, and provide a quick fix on an immediate basis that you need a more longer term approach and uh, in budgeting it would be more appropriate if we move to that longer term approach but even the measures and the indicators we use, right, in terms of the national accounts, we need to have that conversation. How much do we want to socially invest in the future? How much do we want to consume in the present, right? How much do we want to invest in capital infrastructure? Like we kind of we're stuck by kind of thinking in terms of departmental silos. Mm. How much is the Department of Housing going to get? How much mm. is education going to get? It's a very kind of parochial way to think about big, long-term strategic investments that we need to make as a society, as part of the state, and how we want to see society and the economy. And that's not something we do. If you take the last couple of years, like the, the fiscal side of it, the government accounts have got huge boosts from corporation tax which has surged in recent years and has benefited from the, the big drop in, in interest rate pay, rates and interest costs on, on our large national debt uh, because of the, the stance taken by the European Central Bank but by and large those benefits have been spent like we're still mm. running a deficit but this wasn't planned Should we still be running a deficit if we're putting aside half a billion into the rainy day fund like the, the guys have said in the Sunday Business Post piece it's a little bit like putting money into the post office when you've still got an overdraft that you want to be paying well, yeah, So if we put 500 million aside next year by and large that money will be borrowed because we'll still be either running a small deficit or, or perhaps being, so we're being borrowing money balanced. to put it into our own people. Uh, but I suppose it's getting the rainy day fund into the conversation. I, like, I think that the rainy day fund as, a, as a, a concept is useful for discussing the issues. I think the, the current proposal is that yet half formed. Uh, it could be much better. But it has got the idea out there that you don't spend everything as it's coming in. And that's what we've done for the last number of years. All that additional corporation tax revenue, all that additional benefits from interest spending has by and large been used. And some of it in kind of an ad hoc manner. The money is here now. Let's ramp up capital spending. The Department of Health is an overrun 
going, well, it's okay because we're, we're reducing our, our interest costs rather than having the long-term view. Like, we should have moved but to a position where the, the budget isn't in deficit, but we haven't there's, done so. There's, al- there's also kind of mis perception out there that somehow the government should not be borrowing, right? But every government and every advanced market economy across the world can only have money through taxes or borrowing and every single government borrows and every single but government taxes. But we had a taxes. referendum but they're not borrowing now. Borrow. Across the EU most countries aren't running deficits now and I in an environment where you have uh, positive economic uh, and this outturns. Is, this is back to my point about we need to rethink how we measure and what we do because we should be able to distinguish between borrowing for long-term public investment or borrowing for short-term But they're not borrowing at all. They're running surpluses between yeah. their current and Capital, uh, most particularly the small EU states that Aidan has referenced, and that's institutionally they have, encouraged. Yeah, because they have a long-term plan over a, a multi-year period. If you have a strong economic performance, they don't go and use it. They've actually so, yeah. agreed so, their plan. Yeah. They're Does banking that mean, it. Then that when we hear all this talk about Ireland being the star performer and that has the fastest-growing economy in Europe, that in actual fact, if we're one of the countries that's still running a deficit, that we actually ought to think of ourselves as be, almost being bottom of the league. Well, we are one of the best performing economies in Europe. Like that, that is uh, an issue. But on the, the fiscal side, we wouldn't quite be up there. We have very high levels of debt, still the two hundred billion of debt, and we're continuing to run a deficit. Uh, the Department of Finance published uh, an annual debt survey there recently, quite a, a useful document that set out uh, our position in global terms. And one thing they did compare uh, was the debt levels countries have and the deficits they're currently running. Uh, and of course, th- what it turned out is there's only one country in their set running a deficit, that being Ireland, but that, and the rest I, of the countries were running surpluses. Yeah, but you can't. Like, I mean, does you one? It's wrong, I think, to think about country deficit, country bad, country surplus, country good. This is a very simplistic way of looking at the the economy. You have to look at the structure of the economy. If you are an emerging market economy, if you're a late developer, if you're a country like Ireland with serious demographic changes, you've got huge demands put on government, then by definition, to a certain extent, you have to borrow to invest in the future. It's not true. That's not true. But it's not necessarily a bad thing that a government runs a deficit in order to ensure that its society is effectively functioning. And then when we hit the next downturn, we're already running the deficit. hit a downturn, those tax revenues uh, reverse uh, whatever deficit we're running at that stage becomes even larger and we find difficulty with funding ourselves. But this is becomes arbitrary because I'm not saying you run a 20% deficit, right? Mm. We do know institution you can run a 3% deficit. The question is, that's an arbitrary figure. That's not something that's like, that's just arbitrary. I think we'll have to discuss the future of Keynesianism possibly at some time. It's in seven minutes. Uh, Shona, I did want to get to you on the budget, but we are running a little bit short on time and it would be dreadfully rude if we looked at the Sunday papers and didn't look at a piece that you yourself oh. filed this morning uh, for the Sunday Independent, which is about uh, Simon Coveney, mm. who yesterday uh, was part of a welcoming party for the Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas. And he says that uh, Ireland will be forced forced as if somehow against our will to recognise Palestine if those peace talks fail. So the government, uh, pro- the programme for government says that Ireland will recognise p- uh, uh, Palestine as part of a uh, sort of a, a long term solution agreed solution between mm. the Israelis and the Palestinians which it seems pretty obvious that you would when uh, if the Israelis and Palestinians agree in a Palestinian state or the structure of one then Ireland would recognise it. But the uh, Tanisha said yesterday that seeing that there's such a deep impasse between negotiations and you see maybe the United States having moved towards a very pro-Israeli outlook mm. um, that Ireland would therefore recognise Palestine as a way of encouraging Israel to move forward with negotiations and but, creating a contiguous Palestinian but this state. But there's a bit of a, like an inherent contradiction in what Simon Coveney is saying because if he says that we're going to be if the peace talks fail then we might recognise them. I mean the undercurrent to all of that is that we recognise them already but we're just not doing it for tactical reasons. You mean if, we, we don't recognise rec- recognize Palestine already? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, effectively. If he's saying that we, yeah, know, we we'll be pal- forced we to ha- do it. We it's have a Palestinian ambassador. We give them uh, you know, the title ambassador to this to this country but the problem, problem with recognising Palestine is that the government is conscious that it, it to do so would be seen as a sort of belligerent act and interfering or preordaining um, uh, the outcome of any uh, settlement and also might disqualify Ireland from being a broker which it wants 
wants to be during this process. Actually, what he did also announce yesterday, the Taunashtra, was that Ireland will host an informal summit of Arab leaders in, in Ireland to push on the, the the peace process. Now, I mean, I'm sure the Israelis would be invited to that. I can un- can't understand why they wouldn't. Don't think they'd be taking us up, though, would they? But I don't think they'd be taking us up. And then I think that actually the, the, having the Arab leaders here to do that is the right thing because I think that the Arabs have very much left the Palestinians in the cold. Now, you can understand for a lot of obvious reasons, Yemen and Syria are, you know, wars that are taking place that sort of overshadow the, the plight of the Palestinians. But when you look at Saudi Arabia, the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, you know, his relationship with people like Jared Kushner shows that maybe the Saudis have um, sort of, um, you know, maybe not been as supportive mm. of the Palestinians as they should, because I don't think that the American administration would have uh, gone ahead and built their embassy in Jerusalem had, it, had they not had some sort of imprimatur from the Saudis. So yeah. the, having the Arabs here is important. It's uh, just a reminder that the Northern Ireland border isn't the only big border that's occupying mines all around the world, isn't it? But I'm afraid we're completely out of time, so we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, my very thanks, sincere thanks to the panel this morning. Shona Murray, Special Correspondent with Independent News and Media. Professor Aidan Regan of the UCD School of Politics, who's also Director of the Dublin European Institute. And Seamus Coffey, Economist at UCC and Chair of the Irish Fiscal Advisory Council. Thank you all very much. Okay. Uh, back you. with you with lots more in just a moment. On the record. On, the record. On News Talk.